And on that note, let's turn to uh, the book of Ephesians, uh, chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, uh, we're going to start things off in verse uh, 11 uh, this morning. Uh, as a way of review, at the end of chapter 1, Paul makes this prayer for the church at Ephesus, and he prays basically that they would come to uh, a knowledge of God, a deep, deeper knowledge of God, an experience of who God is. And one of the things he prays for is that they would know power, the power that um, brought them into the faith power that worked in their lives uh, to bring them to the knowledge of Christ. And then you move to chapter 2 on the heels of that power, and you see Christ, or you see God the Father, uh, bringing that which is spiritually dead to life. It's an illustration of power, God's resurrection power, bringing that which was dead back to life. Well, in this passage this morning, when we pick things up in verse 11, we're going to see another example of power. That power is, is, is made evident to us that Christ is able to bring that which was separated, those parties which were not together, uh, were hostile to one another or distant from one another, he's able to bring them together. He's able to form the church, uh, the, the church as in God's people called out uh, to him. Another thing that's interesting about this, this passage it's how, it's, um, it's how Paul has laid it out uh, in chapter 2, okay? In chapter 2, the beginning of this chapter is he's describing our, maybe our, our personal situation, our spiritual situation. We're spiritually dead. Then this passage this morning that we're going to look at, starting in verse 11, Paul's going to say, not, I'm not going to talk about your, certainly your spiritual situation is involved, but I'm going to talk about more about your historical situation, Okay? He's, he's talked about in the beginning of, of chapter 2, he said, you're all spiritually dead. Apart from Christ, you are spiritually dead, which is another way of saying that you're alienated from God. You're, you're a foreigner to him, a stranger to God. The last part of chapter 2, he's going to say, not only are you a stranger to God, but you're a stranger to one another. You're, you're a foreigner to one another, alienated from one another. And just as the first half of chapter 2 has this big moment where God intercedes, where it says, but God, you're dead in your sins, but God makes you alive, we're going to see the same pattern here at the end of chapter 2. You're alienated from one another, strangers to one another, but God is interceding in your life. So with that being said, if you're able, let's stand together for the reading of God's word. Uh, Ephesians chapter 2, starting in verse uh, 11. Let's hear God's word to us. Therefore remember that formerly you were all Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who called themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands. Remember at that time you were separate from Christ, excluded from the citizenship in Israel and foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ For he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility, by setting aside in his flesh the law with its commandments and regulations. His his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross 
by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people, also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets with Christ Jesus himself as a chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. This is God's word. It's absolutely true, and he gives it to us because he loves us. Let's pray together. Father, we need to know the richness of your love expressed in truth. Father God, we pray that you would help us to understand the truth of these words here and what they mean for us in our lives together. We ask in Christ's name, amen. Would you please be seated? In the days, in, uh, well, excuse me, in the, in the weeks and perhaps months following the tragedy of, of 9-11, uh, there began to run on our TV screens uh, something like a, a public service announcement or reminder or, or commercials that came out in some areas of the country, and their aim was to remind us that we are all Americans, that we're all part of, of one country, that there's a, a togetherness uh, about us. And one of the way, and how they, they illustrated that or communicated that message was they had these various faces appear before the, the camera screen. And so the first was a, a young woman with dark hair, dark eyes, and a Native American shawl wrapped around uh, her shoulders. And looking into the camera, she said, I'm an American. And then the next face came up. This gentleman had a cowboy hat on, a dark mustache, Hispanic features, young man. He smiles into the camera and says, I'm an American. Another man wearing a helmet it covers most of his hair, but you see some red hair sticking out. As a middle-aged man stares into the camera, a very stern face, and he says, I'm an American. And then the last face comes onto the screen, chiseled chin, dark skin, white turban. He says to the camera, I'm an American. And you get the message that we are come from various backgrounds and, and cultures and different looks and different tastes. But one thing we share in common is that we are all Americans. We all belong to this nation. We're all part of this country. We're all for this country. And there's a unity about us because we're part of something bigger than ourselves. Paul, in this passage, I think is reminding us that you are a part of something bigger than yourself. If you have identified yourself with Christ, if you call yourself a Christian, follower of Christ... Not only do you belong to Christ, but you belong to his church. You belong to the people of God. And Paul is simply reminding us that you are part of something bigger. And that is what unifies us. That is what gives us our togetherness. That's that's our bond. That's why we have a, a closeness. And that's why we can know an intimacy or a relationship among us because of Christ. How he's called us to himself. And how he's called us to one another in a sense. And so if if Paul is outlining for us this new community or new humanity, to use the the language of the text, here's how I want us to to look look at this passage and and think about it. Three things. I want to think about, uh, first, how we were once outsiders or how we were once aliens, aliens, 
how we've been brought together by Christ, how Christ has brought us together, what, what did that look like? And then lastly, what does that mean for us today as believers? Uh, Paul gives three uh, metaphors or three illustrations to describe that, that, that new relationship uh, that we have with God and with one another. So the first one, uh, how we were once outsiders or how we were once uh, aliens. You see it's starting in verse 11 from the very beginning. He says, remember, you who are Gentiles by birth were called uncircumcised and by those who call themselves the uncircumcision. Then he goes on to say, remember that one time you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, foreigners to the covenants of the promise, without hope and without God in the world. Paul gives this list here. And we see that word Gentile, and we hear this, that we were the once the uncircumcised. And if you're like me, I just don't think of myself as a Gentile. Okay, that's not how I identify myself as a Gentile. Uh, if anything, most of us think of ourselves as maybe Americans or South Carolinians, but we just don't think of ourselves as, as Gentiles. But nevertheless, to be a Gentile is to be identified as an outsider, as a foreigner, as a stranger. Uh, in the, the language of the Bible, so to speak, or the labels of the Bible, either you're an Israelite or, or a Jew, you're part of God's people, or you're a Gentile, you're outside of that, you're a foreigner, you're a stranger, you're not a part of that group. And Paul here in this passage is outlining the, the, what keeps them separate or why there's such there's this division between the two. Uh, many of you know, and it doesn't take much to read in the, in the Bible, particularly the New Testament, to see that there's this tension between the Jew and the Gentile, that they don't like each other. Uh, as I was preparing this message, you'll see certain commentators, they'll make reference to, to rabbis in their disparaging remarks about Gentiles, if you will, saying that Gentiles, the only reason there's Gentiles around is they're just fuel for the fires of hell. You know, just this, this separation, this indifference, this, this hatred, this enmity that exists between these two groups is immense. And Paul outlines here in verses 11, 12, that the dividing line, what keeps them separate. He says they're separate from Christ. We read that, yes, they're, they're non-Christians, but you read that in light of the first half of, of chapter 1 of Ephesians, where all these spiritual blessings that Paul is talking about, one after, after the other, and you see just the, the, the weight and glory of being identified with Christ, and you feel how big a deal that is not to have Christ in your life. He goes on to say that they were excluded from citizenship in Israel, Israel meaning they weren't part of God's chosen people, that nation, that people that God pulled out of, of slavery, if you will, and made them into his own people, identifying himself with this nation, with this group of people. He goes on to say that they were foreigners to the covenants of promise. What's he talking about? To be an Israelite meant that you were in a covenant relationship with God, that God had bound himself to you and that you had bound yourself to God, that there was a unique relationship uh, that was established there. And then finally, Paul says that they were without hope and without God in the world. You can imagine that the weight and significance of that, not having a God, not having somebody telling you truth, not having any hope in the world, that further separating these two groups. And as it turned out, as history, pro history progressed, so to speak, the Israelites took all these benefits, all these values, all the things that they had, 
And they sowed the seed of distance between one another. They took that as, as a privilege and they looked down on those who were not part of the Israelites, those that did not belong to God like that. And you see the wording and language in verse 14, hostility formed. In other words, you could use enmity, hatred formed between these two groups because the Jews saw what they had, the laws that they had, the, the, the place of privilege that they had, and they saw themselves as superior to everybody else. It's illustrated in the Luke 18. You have the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector. You remember this parable that Jesus tells? The Pharisee and the tax collector, they go into the temple to pray, and each one prays, and it's like you get a, a live cam of what they're saying. What does the Pharisee pray? He basically says, God, thank you that I'm not like these Gentiles. I'm a religious person. I'm faithful to you. I'm so much better than them. You get a, a taste and a feel, the enmity, the hatred that is that exists between these two groups. In verse 14, he goes on to talk about this dividing wall of hostility. The temple illustrates this. There is a, a courtyard for the Gentiles. That's the only place that they could go. They couldn't go past that and draw closer to where the Jews had greater access uh, to the temple and closer to God. Apparently around this, there was a sign that was marked uh, on this uh, court of the Gentiles that read this. It says, no foreigner is to enter within the, the balustrade or embankment around the sanctuary. Whoever is caught will have himself to blame for his death without which follows. We've all seen no trespassing signs, okay? Uh, violators will be prosecuted. Uh, you probably haven't seen a sign that's so weighty as this. If you die, if you trespass, uh, you're going to die and it's not our fault, okay? Uh, pretty weighty enmity that exists between these two. In verse 15, the dividing wall of hostility. Uh, and what they're talking about and what Paul is alluding to is the law. By setting aside in the flesh the law which with its commands and regulations. The law was, was creating space between these two groups. The law was what was separating them. And we think about law, certainly think about the Ten Commandments, but think about the ceremonial laws, the unclean and, and clean regulations, uh, all the laws, that the temple, all those things that were associated with that. And God gave them that law, that instruction, so that they could be a, a city on the hill, so to speak, that they could declare and be uh, an example and point people to the glory of God. That God could use them as a nation to bless others. Not to be exclusive, not to be withdrawn, not to, not to keep to themselves. Not to say that any other, if you're not a Jew, you don't matter. But to use the law and be this uh, shining light towards other individuals. To draw people in. But that's not what happened the Jews took the law and they took it as a privilege. They said that we're better than you because we have these things. And they looked down. They despised others, despising the Gentiles. And of course, if somebody despises you, what are you going to do in return? You're going to despise them in return. And so there's this hostility, there's this enmity that exists between these two parties. And you get that picture, verses 11 and 12. This is what's separating them. And this is how things have gone wrong. This is how they've gone bad. That's the problem. How does God intercede? How does God begin to change things? Starting in verse 13, God brings healing. And of course, he brings healing to the tension with what? With the cross, the work of his son in their lives. Verse 17, he says, uh, He came, that is Christ, and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to who were near. 
What's he talking about? He preaches peace, and who are the ones that are far away, and who are the ones that are near? For Christ to preach peace, he's simply preaching the gospel, uh, the work that he has done on their behalf, uh, the good news of salvation, simply uh, declared to them. And he preaches to those who are far away and those who are near. Think about those who are far away as the Gentiles. They don't know the covenants of promise. They don't know what it looks like, uh, this temple worship. They don't have the, the history that the Israelites have with God. They don't know him like the Israelites do. And yet says, and yet God and the cross and Christ are preached to them, those who are far away. Today we might use the language of those who are unchurched, those who did not grow up in the church, who have no idea what a VBS is, who have no idea what the difference between the Old and the New Testament uh, they have no idea about the, the, the concept of, of the cross and, and what that means. The gospel is still preached to them, and they're being saved, and they're being brought in. There's healing taking place there. And then the gospel is also preached to those who are near, the Jews, the moral ones, the religious ones. The gospel is going to them. Today, we might call those folks the church people. And it might look like a situation where you are raising your children in the church, you sending them to things like VBS or Sunday school and the, the, the weekly, monthly activity of the church, and they're hearing the gospel. You talk with them about the truth of God over the dinner table. You pray with them. Uh, you explain the gospel to them, and at some point they hear it. They hear it for themselves. The penny drops, so to speak, and they understand their need for a Savior hostility has ended. They're brought into what Paul calls this new humanity, this new creation. It's what we call the church, God's assembly of believers, God's assembly of people drawn together because of Christ and what he has done for them. Maybe think about the significance of it like this. Let's say you join a club. And why do you join a club? Because you have an interest and you want to be with other like-minded people who have that same interest. And so let's say you join a golf club. You enjoy the game of golf. Uh, you join this club because you can talk to other people about the game of golf. And lo and behold, they actually have a golf course. And you play golf together with them. And you have that one or two interests, points of interest with them. And you have that, that kind of bond there. And that's good. But imagine the, a, a deeper bond that exists between those that have the same background, the same culture, uh, the same race. There's, there's a bond that's there. Whether it's being American or being from another being Chinese or whatever it is, there's a certain bond there, and that's even more profound. That's even more weightier for you. There's even more greater point of connection that's there. But imagine the bond that Paul is talking about here. Because of your identity in Christ, because Christ has preached peace to you, because of the cross, there is a deeper bond that exists between you and other believers. A more profound bond that exists. It's, it's like Paul is saying, the bond that you feel with other people of your, sim, of, of your culture, that's great. But the bond that you can feel with, some, with another believer in Christ from a different culture should be deeper and richer and more fuller than the bond you experience with somebody else from your same uh, background. Paul is saying it, it's that deep. It's, it's that specific. Pastor James Boyce expresses this uh, being a part of the church and being part, a member of the church like this. He says, being a member of God's household brings inestimable privileges with it. It brings us into the supportive network of our spiritual brothers and sisters. 
It gives us a share into the oversight, fellowship, and prayers of the church. It gives us a right to the sacraments and the place in God's plan. More importantly, it gives us access to God as Father, which means that we can come to him in prayer at any moment of any day with any need or request and have the assurance that he will hear, receive us, answer our requests out of his own mercy according to his own pleasing and perfect will. Do you see what God has done? Is it a reality in your life, the access that you have to him and the bond in the, what you share with other like-minded believers? Well, that's God or Christ creating this new humanity. How does he illustrate it? He gives us three illustrations. This is the last thing, that picture of how we're, how we're joined together. He says it in verse 19. He says that we're fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household. Okay? And then starting in verse 20, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him, the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you two are being built together to become a dwelling place in which God lives by his spirit. You see, three illustrations or three metaphors of what it's like to be identified in this new humanity, this new congregation, this new community of believers. First, he describes it as we're citizens of God's people, citizens of God's nation. Uh, it means, and in other words, y'all hold, but everybody in this room holds a dual citizenship, okay? You're a citizen of America, or you're a citizen of, of Clarendon County or of, Mar- of Manning. And if you put your faith and trust in Christ, you're a citizen of heaven. You're, you belong to that nation, if you will. You, belong, you have that kind of citizenship. And then Paul says that you are members of his household. In other words, you belong to the family of God. We touched on this a little bit when we looked at chapter 1. You've been adopted into having God as your father. If God is your father, it means that you have other brothers and sisters in Christ, others who identify with him. You're part of the household of God. And the last thing Paul says, that we are a building joined together, your holy temple to the Lord, that God resides in you. Christ is that chief cornerstone, and we are like stones that are being built up, and Christ dwells in us. It's not so much of him dwelling in a space, dwelling in that that temple of the Old Testament. He dwells in his people by his spirit. One thing I I, I read as I was putting this together, I never noticed this, but somebody pointed out to me. With each metaphor, with each illustration, the relational intensity intensifies. It gets deeper, or it gets more profound, if you will. First, you think about our relationship uh, to God in this passage. Uh, the first one is about citizenship, and so the king lives with his citizens. Okay, that's one kind of relationship. And then you see that we're uh, children living in the household of God as our father, and so that there's, it gets even closer. God is, as our father is even closer to us. But then think about the last illustration, the last metaphor. He compares us to, to living stones where Christ dwells in us. It doesn't get any closer than that. Each one of those things builds with intensity of relationship. But then think about the intensity of relationship with regard to one another. It's one thing to be a part of a, a citizen of a, of a nation. As a citizen, you share in a, a, a similar social contract. There's a similar way of agreement about, about doing things, and there's that kind of relationship. Then you, you take it one step further. We're part of the household of God. 
brothers and sisters. So there's a closeness there. There's a common bond because of who our parents are and how we relate to, to, to God as our Father. And then you get to the last one. We are these building stones that God is establishing, erecting, building his church. And we're all being placed together. We're being cemented together, if you will. And you see how close we get there. Let me ask you this question. Paul illustrated this, or given these metaphors, this is what the church is like, and this is why you're a part of the church, and this is what God is doing in your midst. Does your lifestyle go with what Paul is describing here? In other words, if you come to church once a month, twice a month, three times a month, come in for an hour and then leave, does that reflect what Paul is talking about here? Does that reflect the, the, the new humanity, the new congregation, the new people that God is doing? Does that reflect the bond that you have with other people, other fellow believers? Is your lifestyle reflecting the weight and significance of what Paul is talking about here? Our kids, when they were younger, they loved uh, the movie Cars. Maybe some of you remember this movie or heard of it. Cars is about, uh, it's a cartoon, and it's got the, the main car, okay, cars are not, the cars are people, is uh, Lightning McQueen, and he is a young, upstart, cocky, fast race car, and he wants to go to this big race in California, he's on the East Coast, he's got to go to the West Coast, get out there for this big race, and if he wins this race, it could be a big turning point in his career, and his fame, and his status, and so he wants to win this race, he's hungry to win this race, so he's driving out there, and for various reasons, he gets stuck in this small town in the Midwest, this town that everybody has forgotten, and he's been arrested. And the judge says, okay, your punishment is to fix our roads. Our roads are in horrible situation, potholes, they're just a mess, you've got to fix those roads. And he is hemming and hawing like McQueen is, he doesn't want to do this at all, he just wants to go to California and go to this race. He wants nothing to do with these people, nothing to do with this community. He wants to go and do his own thing. Well, at one point in the movie, in the beginning, he's got this kind of boot as traps attached to his, his wheels, like handcuffs. He can't go anywhere. That's released, and he just takes off. But he doesn't get far. He runs out of gas, and so he's got to come back. And then he says, okay, I'll repair the road. And he repairs it, but it looks horrible. It looks worse than it was before. Uh, the last thing he does to try and get out of town, there's an older gentleman that's in town, and he's a former race car he says, okay, if you beat me on this track, you're free to go. And, of course, he loses. And all throughout, he's trying to, to, to get out of this town, to get away from these people. He doesn't need them, doesn't want to be around them. He knows where he wants to be on his own in California racing this race. And, of course, at the end of the movie, he finally gets to that race, but he realizes what he needs. He needs those people. He realizes the weight and importance of those relationships in his life, and he can't do it on his own. There's a survey I came across some years ago, and the stat basically said that a large percentage of Christians think that they can live the Christian life without the church. They think that they can, they're better off, in fact, without the church in their lives, that just them and God is good enough. The only problem with that is that's not how the Bible talks about the Christian faith. To be identified with Christ, to be a believer in Christ, means you're part of a body of Christ. You're part of his bride. You're part of the church. And we are made for relationships. We're made that we need one another. 
need people praying for us, need people hearing us, need people walking through things with us, needing to, to serve together. Christ has built his church not in isolated pockets, but he's building his, his people to love and serve him. Let's pray and ask that he would work uh, in us as his church. Father God, we uh, ask that you would help us. Uh, we hear these words about the importance of church and how you've established your church and how you've created your church. Uh, many of us live in isolation. Uh, many of us struggle uh, with loneliness. And many of us uh, struggle with, we want to be uh, more connected, uh, to be more relational, but we just don't know what that looks like. And there are those in the room that just, we just don't want to make the time. We don't want to uh, put in the effort uh, because we don't want to change our schedules or because there's tension that we feel with other individuals. And we pray for your uh, work to be had there as well. Father, we need you and we need your church. And we pray that you would use us here as your local body. In Christ's name, amen.